The best way to predict the future is to invent it. Stephen Ambrose brings you up to speed on what the future holds as he explores the latest technology as it impacts our lives. Well, good morning and welcome FM and to Tech Talk right here as per usual. And I'm getting a little concerned. Every one of my intros seems to be Frank Sinatra, which is very, very, very cool, but not exactly cutting edge tech. You're going to have to talk to the team that con- that connects me with the music. But anyway, um, it's always cool to start with something smooth and, and warm like Frank Sinatra singing. But anyhow, moving on to more technology-related news, which is right up to date. Nedbank have announced a new system, which is really interesting. I'm not particularly keen on the name, but I suppose the name is the name. But what it is, they call it Money Message. Bit weird, but such is such is naming in uh, in the world. But it lets small and micro businesses, in fact any business, but aimed clearly at small and micro businesses, receive secure in chat payments from their customers via WhatsApp. Now WhatsApp payments have become a really common payment mechanism pretty much across the world. Partly ignited the whole security and privacy thing that we all were chatting about a couple of months ago because they obviously had to update their terms and conditions because once you start sending money using their platform, a whole host of other legal issues and and compliance matters come into force. However, uh, this system is really simple. If you've got a valid South African ID and a South African bank account, you can access money message. You can access money message. And where it gets super useful is if you've got someone who comes to your house to fix the plumbing or do whatever, you can do an instant payment through WhatsApp simply by accepting a, um, a request through WhatsApp from, from uh, someone who wants to be paid. And how it works specifically is that if someone is a merchant and wants to be paid via that system, they send you a message. It'll come as an SMS until you've registered. Very simple registration um, process, which is in the SMS. And once that's up and running, you just enter your card, debit, credit, any card or any bank account in South Africa, and then you can simply pay using WhatsApp. No, no terminals needed, no insecure hand over your banking details, no logging onto your banking profile, one way or the other, be it mobile or fixed. It's slick. It's easy. I haven't tried it yet, but I'm going to give it a shot one of these fine days and see how it works. But I have played with other payment platforms based on messaging, and they work extremely well, very simple, very clean, and it's just another way to pay because paying is pretty pretty fundamental to everything that we do these days. And talking about paying and some other interesting payment platform news is that finally, it's happened about 10 days ago, but finally Apple Pay is available in South Africa. And there are a couple of interesting scenarios that this raises. Right now, it is only available from FNB, ABSA, and um, not FNB, sorry, excuse me. FNB is still to come. We've tried to find out when, but they've decided not to say anything until they are ready. However, it's Nedbank, ABSA, and certain other cards only that you can use. Um, oh, and Discovery Bank. So Discovery Bank are one of the, the launch partners. I've tried it with both Nedbank and Discovery Bank, and it works absolutely perfectly. The benefit of, of Apple Pay, very much like Samsung Pay, 
is that if you're out and about, you don't want to take your wallet out your pocket, out of your bag, take your, your, your purse out of your bag, wherever it's hidden. It's so much easier. You just tap on your screen or swipe up or double click the, the side button. Up pops a payment option. Face ID works perfectly for that and you can pay at any terminal. And what it also does, it now allows any terminal in the country to accept pay, Apple Pay from international. Because up to now, it's become quite a big payment platform, especially in places like America and Europe <clears throat> and the East, where Apple is fairly ubiquitous. It's slick. It's easy. I've tried it many times. It works extremely well, easy to set up, and it's just another real option. I do expect that FNB and the other banks will climb on board as soon as possible because FNB actually mentioned that they have well over a million users with Apple devices. And, of course, they know because people who use the app obviously use it from the device of their choice, and that device reports what it is to the provider such as FNB. So a million devices using Apple Pay could come on stream from FNB going forward. So give it a shot. It's very easy to set up. You really don't need much. You just need your your card number. You can even take a picture of your card, and it inserts the number automatically. But if you've got your card number, your PIN, and um, your CVV number, you don't even need your PIN. You just need your CVV number, and you can set up in immediately and get it going and pay at any Woolworths, Checkers, any store that receives contactless payment. You can use it um, on any contactless terminal anywhere. So super slick, super easy, and a very, very cool way to pay. So more and more contactless payment, especially in this current age of craziness with this whole COVID thing. No one wants to touch anything and cards don't want to be not terribly good idea to use too much alcohol or sanitizing your card. So it's just a great idea. Tap to pay with your phone becomes a super slick, easy way to do it. We don't have the other two big players, the Google Pay, yet in in South Africa, but we do have Samsung, and we now have Apple, and it, you've got the WhatsApp Pay and lots of other ways of doing contactless, slick and easy payment. So stay tuned. I'm sure we're going to see more and more of this going forward, but it's certainly a pleasure um, to have these various platforms in South Africa now. And on that, that note, some interesting news from LG. About a week ago as well, they announced finally, there have been some rumors floating around. There's been some talk. They certainly haven't climbed on the new phone bandwagon like a lot of the other players out there. But LG have finally thrown in the towel and um, essentially stated that from 31 July, they will no longer sell smartphones. And what does that mean for us in South Africa? I've been a a fan of LG phones for many, many years. Yes, I believe for the last three, four years, they have they've made some really innovative, they've done some incredibly strange and interesting phones in the past. Even of late, their latest offering, the Wing, which had like a slide swivel number where you had a T-type setup, was great for gaming. Not entirely convinced it was great for anything else, but it was a great um, way to to just show that they had some technical noose and some understanding of, of how cool things were. So I was a big fan of LG phones. But essentially, this statement came out early April. That the board has decided that the market is too competitive. They just have been losing money for the last five, six years. 
and they haven't hit the traction that the Huawei's, the Oppo's, the Xiaomi's and the Samsung's have, as well as, of course, the global juggernaut, the Apple's of this world. So they decided they're going to call it quits. What they will do, and this has been confirmed by the South African subsidiary, they'll honor all their obligations to business partners. In other words, they'll deliver all the phones they've contracted to deliver. They will manage and handle all the warranties. If you have such a phone, they'll also provide software updates and supports for existing products provided in terms of obviously local law and wherever possible in terms of upgrades. So the newer versions, certainly for the period for the coming year or two, will still get the latest versions of Android. They'll get all the necessary information that they need to stay up to date, but there will be no further phones from now on. And the whole sale or the whole closure of the mobile business should be completed by 31 July. I think it's pretty sad. It removes a bit of innovation from the market and it also removes a great phone. I mean, I've always loved the LG phones for their audio subsystem. It's still got the best sounding, sound quality of any mobile device bond none, including the latest iPhones and Samsungs. So it'll be a loss. It's unfortunate, but unfortunately for everybody, this is in a hugely, hugely competitive space. I think that the pandemic and the change, you know, mobile phones also have become less critical for a lot of people when they're spending more and more time at home. They're not commuting. Even so, it is definitely a tough market out there. And the big boys and the Chinese competition, even with the, the current demise of, of Huawei in that space, it has been brutal out there. And I think we were going to see, unfortunately, a few more failures in this space. There are a couple of other smaller players from big companies. That's what's fascinating. LG is not exactly a small company, and they certainly can afford to compete. But they've decided to cut their losses and to move on. So no more LG phones for, for the moment. And we're going to break now for a quick um uh, a break from our uh, or a quick note from our sponsors and Apple held a huge launch event uh, as of Tuesday and the first one for 2021 and some really interesting stuff coming and this week in Tech Talk Cafe I'm going to talk about all the new stuff from Apple all the new products that they launched and some really interesting technologies that go along with that and one cool little tag which may actually make your life easier and we'll be back straight after this this is Tech Talk with Stephen Ambrose on 101.9 High FM. Now, moving on to healthy bodies, you know the old story, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Well, it certainly may keep the doctor away, but it will kill your bank balance in no uncertain terms. Even though what is really interesting is that Apple for the last 10 years has pretty much brought all the latest products at, apart from the the costs of their phones going up significantly in the last two, three years. Certainly the bigger models, some of the cheaper models have actually dropped in price. But their laptops, tablets have pretty much stayed. Their premium products have stayed the same price. And the technology and everything that goes into them has um, has improved dramatically. But in the last event, which was held sort of towards the end of last year, Apple dropped a bombshell on the market, and that was with the release of their so-called M1 chip. And that chip is the processor that runs the computers that we use today. And up until now, the AMD Intel duopoly, with Intel being the clear leader for 
many, many years, in fact, a decade or more in this space, um, being disrupted by a big change. Apple currently makes all the chips for their mobile phones themselves. They design them. They have them made at fabrication places all over the world, specifically their latest and probably the best fabrication places in Taiwan called TES. Oh, I've gone crazy. I can't remember the name. But anyway, it's a, it's a, it's a chip plant that's based in Taiwan, largest in the world. They're making the most revolutionary chips, certainly have the best and the best processes. Um, Samsung also make chips which is something that they use in their own, but for some reason, mostly due to patent restrictions, they have to use Qualcomm chips in the US in their phones, but elsewhere in the world, like in South Africa, they use their own chips. So the manufacture of chips is one thing, but the design and the thinking that goes behind the chips is a whole other thing. And finally, Apple launched the M1 chip in a range of laptops and one little, the Mac Mini, to compete directly with Intel. And two things happened. One, the performance based on their own software, because remember that Apple create their own software, they now create their own hardware, they now create their own processes, gave them the ability to extend battery life by pretty much 50%. So you're talking about laptops uh, with battery life up to 20 hours, uh, with performance that's up to 50% faster than, than anything that Intel has been able to do to date. And an added advantage is that it has all sorts of processes and neural uh, processes and video processes and sort of AI processes built into the chip, which has two things. One, it's super power efficient, long battery life, super powerful, really amazing performance. And the most important thing is super small because essentially it's exactly the same chip that's been built into the iPhone and the, the iPad tablets for, for quite a few years, just on steroids with regard to what an M1 chip can do. So Apple announced a whole new range of interesting stuff, and I'm going to start the other way around. They started with some cards and podcasts and air tags. Talk about air tags in a minute. And a new purple iPhone. Can't go wrong with a purple iPhone. Who doesn't want a purple iPhone? But anyway, that's another story for another day. But for me, the big news was a brand new iPad Pro. Now, the iPad Pro, in my estimation, and I've played with a lot of tablets, a lot of um, manufacturers have made them. The market has pretty much come down to essentially one or two high-ish end uh, tablets and a ton of really inexpensive ones. But as phones have grown and as they've hit five, six, seven inches uh, in diagonal size, most people have done away with a, with a tablet. Tablets have really faded from their heyday. But in the performance business and even creative world, the, the iPad has stood out by being incredibly powerful, very, very high quality, and the quality of apps, the sheer level of apps and what they can do has pretty much mirrored what was possible on a computer. Add to that the touchscreen, the ability to transport it, the extended battery life, and the ease and convenience of using these tablets pretty much anywhere, anytime, certainly has driven the market into a very high-end market, which is dominated by, iPad, by Apple and their iPads, both the Pro and the Air, and everyone else who's Samsung have a couple of competitors that are very close, Huawei have one or two as well, but essentially none of them have approached the sort of 
market penetration nor share of the iPad. And the iPad always had one of these processors very similar to the M1. Well, what they announced this week was that the Apple's M1 chip is coming to the iPad Pro, which is a very logical progression. What it does do, it brings absolutely massive uh, improvements with regard to performance, battery life, and just general capabilities, mostly on the video processing side. So the AI ability, or the neural engine as they call it, definitely is improved. The speed of the processor has improved, but the speed of the video processor has improved dramatically. And in addition, they've got two new models of the iPad Pro, the 10.7-inch and the 12-inch, the 12.9-inch. On the 12.9-inch, they've brought a new type of LCD or new type of screen which is much brighter, and they use a technology called mini-LED. Now, mini-LED is going to be something that a lot of people are going to, to hear about. Uh, LG are about to release a whole range of mini-LED TVs. Samsung will be doing the same very shortly. So mini-LED will be a technology you hear about more and more and more. And what mini-LED means in simple terms is that the screen itself, instead of having a couple of just stepping back. LCD screens need a light source. It's not like OLED, which every dot on the screen is its own light source. An LCD screen is a liquid crystal display, which has three different colors in it, which switch and, and, and adjust to give you everything you see, but it needs a light from behind in order to make the picture on, or so that you can see the picture on the screen. What mini-LED technology does, it puts tens, if not hundreds of thousands of tiny little light sources right behind um, the LCD screen, which allows an incredible brightness, number one, an incredible contrast to be able to be taken from a very, very, very um, thin light and bright screen. So the new mini LEDs push brightness by 50 to 60%, if not more. It improves the black level, so it's got contrast ratios like OLEDs, sort of to the million to one type ratio and makes for a much sharper, brighter, um, much more spectacular screen. Now, that will only be available on the 12.9-inch iPad Pro. They say it's also more battery efficient. This I need to see because with tons of LEDs, you've got to use some some power. Anyway, but Apple really make any, um, any announcements that aren't pretty factual. So the new mini-LED screen is on the 12.9-inch iPad Pro along with the M1. And in fact, it is now equivalent, for the most part, to a uh, MacBook Pro in, in, in both performance. It comes with up to two gig of, uh, two terabytes of, of storage. It has tons and tons of, of other features, including now 5G support. So essentially, the MacBook Pro is, is, a, is an iPhone with a massive 12-inch screen. And that's exactly where it's going at. But all the, all the, the, Accessories remain. The pencil hasn't changed. It is available. And the price is the same as the model of last year, which is very interesting. Obviously, the the more uh, capacious hard drive or, or storage capacities add massive pricing to it. But it looks like an absolutely spectacular device. The new iPad Pros certainly are now drawing a very dis sort of blurring the line greatly between a laptop because here's a, a, an ultra-slim 
ultra small 12.9 inch tablet with the same power as a MacBook Pro with potentially more memory or more storage than a MacBook Pro. It has a touchscreen, which the MacBook Pro does not have. And it has, will run pretty much all the apps that you can imagine would run on a MacBook Pro with the exception of maybe one or two very specialized apps, but every app that you would imagine will run on an iPad Pro. So why not have an iPad Pro rather than a MacBook Pro? But that's a, a discussion for another time. I want to get my hands on one and play with it, and then I'll let you know how that goes. But essentially, the line between tablet and laptop is blurring, and it's another reason why you'll probably never see a touchscreen on a MacBook Pro, but you've got one if you want it on the iPad Pro. So that was the one huge huge announcement. The other one, and these look super, super, super cool, is the new iMac has been launched finally. And it is the fourth or fifth computer in their range that has the new M1 chip. So the new iMacs are now powered by custom M1 silicon, not Intel processors, and they have a completely new thinner aluminium design. In fact, if you look at the MacBook Pros, um, I mean the iPad Pros, that's exactly what the new uh, iMacs look like. They essentially look like a massive 24-inch iPad Pro without a touchscreen. So it's the same aesthetic. It's squarish. It's flat. It's super thin. And the reason they've been able to get there is because the M1 silicon has integrated everything into an absolutely tiny package. So there is, if you think about it right now, an M1 chip, or it's equivalent to A14, which is in your iPhone, is tiny. It's super light. It gives you massive battery life. Not that battery life's a big deal here. But essentially, all of this is now in one super slick uh, package with a 24-inch high-quality 4.5K screen, which is pretty sharp. And the quality of, of iMac screens have always been pretty much outstanding. But what they've done is they've, again, brought it closer and closer to a mobile device. It'll run, because it's an M1 chip, it'll run all your um, all your iPhone apps natively on the screen. It has full tilt, it's beautifully built, and it comes in a range of spectacular colors, from a teal green to a, to an orange, yellow, and multiple versions of purple and a blue. It's very, very, very cool looking. They've done some incredible work on the camera, so there's a very high-res front camera, very high quality speakers from what they said. And it certainly does look like um, an incredibly good computer, all-in-one computer for home use if you want something of that sort with a really big screen. They have not yet replaced the 27-inch iMac that's been taken off the market now. So if you want something bigger than this, I do anticipate with the launch of the new um the new M2 chip towards the end of the year, we're going to see a 27-inch iMac. But this new one really looks very, very cool. It's not going to be inexpensive, unfortunately, but it is a significant, significant upgrade on the current iMacs. They brought it right up to date, and it is incredibly, incredibly pretty. So the colors, I'm not entirely convinced. I think a, a silver or a gray computer on your desk probably looks better, but the colors are cool. I think a lot of people are going to see it as a design statement. And um, it comes with enough memory that you can run it and use it. One other thing they've upgraded, the keyboard now has Touch ID as well. So you can use it for Apple Pay. You can use it for anything, which is very cool. 
And the mouse is the same mouse. Not a big fan of their mouse. It also has one huge flaw. You've got to turn it upside down and plug it into charge. So you can't use the mouse, mouse while you're charging it. That is one thing that I think they could have figured out or sorted out. They also announced a brand new Apple TV. Well, brand new upgraded Apple TV. So if you're an Apple TV fan, and my my personal preference for the best quality streaming box on the market, far better than any built-in software in a smart TV, and um, definitely faster and more capable than most uh, streaming boxes out there, like the Roku's, like the Fire Sticks, and any other. The Apple TV for me, is definitely the best streaming box on the market. It has a lot more power than that right now. And what they've done, they've upgraded the internals to an A14 chip, which for the most part won't make much difference for the vast majority of people. Yes, I do believe the new Apple TV's picture will be better than the current one. Um, They are talking to content providers to create high frame rate HDR, which needs much more processing and much more memory than before. Um, in order to give you a slightly better or a better, sharper picture, depending on the TV. So if you've got a 65-inch and above high-quality 4K TV, you'll probably notice the improvement of the Apple TV. For the rest, it's probably touch and go whether you want to buy a new Apple TV. It's the same price as before. We'll come to South Africa. It comes in the 32-gig and 64-gig capacity. But the huge change, something that is way, way overdue, having had numerous Apple TV remotes smashed by my kids over the years, is they've got an all-aluminium, much more comprehensive uh, remote. Now, I would imagine that that remote would be purchasable for your old Apple TV in the nearest future. The old one was around about 1,300 rand. This one will probably be close to two grand. You decide if you want to spend two grand on a remote, but that's a decision for another time, especially if your glass-backed or fronted remote for your Apple TV just got smashed for the third time by simply letting it slip out of your fingers onto a tile floor. But that's, as I said, a story for another episode. But the new remote has um, is, is cleverer. It looks a lot more robust. It has more functionality. It will also control your TV better. So I think they've done some work there. But if you're in the market for a new Apple TV 4K, the new one looks great. It certainly will be more of a powerhouse than the previous version and certainly has lots and lots of power and lots and lots of features which you may or may not want. The other big news of the event, and I can see our time is running out really quickly, was a a product that they've been talking about a long time. Samsung put them to the post by launching their version of it um, earlier this year. But eventually they've launched their lost item tracker called an AirTag. And what makes this different to pretty much any other or similar tracker thing which relies on Bluetooth from various phones is that the AirTag is built into the Find My iPhone technology. So if you have an AirTag and you want to find, it's a tiny little disc, it weighs pretty much nothing. It'll be round about one and a half grand for four of them, which is not the cheapest thing. They probably charge wirelessly. I haven't played with it yet, but we will in the nearest future. But how this works and why it's so clever, and of course, before I get there, Apple have obviously got a range of very cool keyring accessories for extra fee, um, even some from Cartier, uh, to to hold your AirTag. But essentially, you can slip it into a wallet, you can put it anywhere in your bag. 
And I've, from the, the review, if you're using Find My iPhone in the latest version of iOS 14.5, it is incredibly directional. You can walk all the way up to your keys, up to your bag, up to your wallet, wherever it is in the world. And how it works is if there's an iPhone anywhere near and that iPhone is connected to the Internet, it will connect to the AirTag and allow you to find it. So you don't need to be within range of the AirTag. You just need to have that AirTag to be within range of any Internet-connected, Bluetooth-connected iOS device. So if you drop your keys in Discam, for example, um, and you cannot find them and you go home and you're a couple of kilometers away using uh, Find My um, technology in your iPhone, it should, if there's someone in within the shop or in the vicinity using an iPhone, it should be able to find your, your keys and beep it and you can actually get a notification and, and track it through your phone directly to where it is. So I think it's it's just clever, cool technology. It stops you searching for your wallet. It stops you searching for your various items on the market. I do expect, again, they'll be in South Africa in the next couple of weeks. And I think it's, it's a great, as usual, highly over-engineered from Apple. But it's a useful tool. It works with the, the Apple ecosystem pretty seamlessly and certainly makes life a lot easier. Don't attach them to your pets, though that's an option. And certainly don't pop them in the pocket of your kid when he goes out uh, shopping or something because it may be a little bit of an invasion of privacy. But it could actually work, so quite a nice idea. On that note, we'll be back straight after this with my gadget of the week, which is obviously fitness and a Fitbit. We'll be back straight after this. This is Tech Talk with Stephen Ambrose on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back. And my gadget of the week, which I haven't had been able to get my hands on as yet. It's only coming out in the next two to three weeks in South Africa, is the new Fitbit Lux. Now, Fitbit, as you know, I'm a big fan of the Fitbit range of health and sports trackers. They're not the best smart devices, smart watches on the planet. They certainly do not compete with the Apple Apple Watch, and they do not compete in many ways with the Samsung watches because they are much more fully fledged smart watches or smart devices that obviously are major companions to your phones. That Some of them have even got their own SIMs built in, so you don't even need your phone to go running to do all sorts of things. But for the vast majority of us, and I mean, if you're a serious fitness tracker person and you really want something that is the next league because you're a serious sportsman, cyclist, whatever it is that you do, the Garmin's, the Suntos, and others make, I believe, better sports and fitness tracking. But for the vast majority of people, just having a device, and the research has clearly indicated that having or wearing a smart activity tracker like a Fitbit or equivalent improves your fitness no end. It gets you off the couch more. It gets you more active. And those that wear it regularly definitely see benefits in fitness. And fitness and health is without question one of the key issues that we all need to sport, to think about and be very, very, very conscious of going forward. Now, Fitbit was purchased, and I think the sale is finally closed by Google. So you can imagine the power and the sheer ability that a company like Google can bring to a company that was pretty big in itself, Fitbit, 
is, is, is quite a big deal. And I've been wearing Fitbits of various flavors and trialing them over the last few years. The latest one, the Fitbit Sense, is definitely their best smartwatch that they've, or watch that they've brought to date. I mean, it checks my VO2 max. It checks my heart rate, my oxygen OSAP levels. It checks my activities. And I found it to be super convenient. And one of the best parts is that it's got between four and five day battery life. But it does look like a pebble type smartwatch. Pretty cool. I had some issues with the strap. The new rubber strap seemed to react with my skin and gave me quite a, a terrible reaction. Changed it for a, a really cool um, stay, um, nylon strap that they have. And I've had no further problems. And there are no touch buttons or no physical buttons. It's all capacitive touch, which works quite well. Occasionally it just doesn't if your finger's cold or too sweaty. So little kind of minor details like that. But what Fitbit have done and where I think Fitbit understand what's going on, they've brought out a really cool new device, which is slim, thin, and beautifully made. It's called the Lux. It has up to five-day battery life, but with all the features of the the the, the Fitbit um, sense, with the exception of the anxiety measurement. Now, again, I think that was not particularly well thought out. The anxiety management system um, means you've got to sit with your hand over the screen for two minutes to try check your anxiety. And I must admit, sitting for two minutes doing nothing, holding your hand over your 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 smartwatch screen tends to up my anxiety rather than reduce it. But <laughs> perhaps that's just me. However, it's it's not proved to be very useful for me. The rest of the functions work really well. But the new Fitbit Lux is very slim and it'll work very well on people with smaller wrists or people who want to wear a fashion watch or any other form of watch and then wear this on the other hand. I know you look like a geek, but when you go running and you want to track your activity or track your sleep, a really light, slim watch makes a big difference. It comes in a number of different colors. They also um, show some premium accessories like stainless steel bands, link bands, and things like that, and leather straps. However, I must say that in South Africa, I've always struggled to try to get hold of them, which is a real challenge. I've had this discussion with Fitbit over the years. They, I don't think a lot of the retailers are keen to keep the whole range of accessories for something that is perhaps as transient as a as a health tracker. But here where here's where it gets really interesting. It's got full stress management ability built in, sleep tools, fitness and activity, the health metrics dashboard, and it comes with free Fitbit Premium. I've been using Fitbit Premium now for a couple of months, and the insights it gives me around sleep, around health, around my activity is pretty useful. I don't use the training stuff much in it, so for around about 100 rand a month, it may be worth worthwhile sticking with Fitbit Premium. But even if you don't, the app is great. The 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 device is is very accurate as a tracker, and I would highly recommend that if you're looking for a really good quality tracker, which links to all the various apps out there, it links to Discovery Health. It gives you a lot of lot of information. Your heart rate tracking. It's now even got the ability to do proper um, heart rate measurements so you can see if there's any uh, atrial fibrillation. Sorry, I've got to get that right. So it is the sensors on these devices have really improved to the point where perhaps they're not as accurate as medical uh, devices, but they're certainly good enough 
that you can use them to check that your heart your heart is in good health, that generally you are recovering quickly, you're tracking all your steps, you're getting all your points in your discovery app, and whatever else that you need to do. There isn't built-in GPS, and I've never yet enjoyed connecting my um, earphones to them or earbuds via Bluetooth, which you can do. So there are a lot of features in in the standard Fitbit product and certainly this one. But I think the big difference here is it's got all the latest sensors in the jewelry design type out, uh, setup, which is very, very, very cool. The other good news is it's going to sell for around about three and a half thousand rand when it hits the market in about three, four weeks. You should be able to get it in South Africa, certainly by the end of May. And uh, it, it's, it's a great option. I'll try one out when, when we get them. But they look super cool. It comes in gold, it comes in black, and it comes in silver, which is very cool. So give it a, give it a, if you're interested in one of these things, give it a few weeks and you should be able to get one. And I think um, it's, it's, it's another really good option from Fitbit. They've improved their quality enormously. Their functionality is great. The screen is very, very, very nice. Should be readable, I find, with the sense. the same quality as the sense. You can read it in bright light outdoors, which is a big problem. A lot of them are not that good like that. But this one, certainly the sense and the new Lux has the same quality screen. And I think you're going to see, be able to see it at any light at any time. So check it out. Be available from, from distributors pretty much across the country. And it should be quite the slick uh, tool to, to inform you about how you're progressing in your fitness journey going forward. Now, before we go, I can see we've got another quick break for our sponsors. And then I'll be back with some interesting research about working from home and some thoughts on where we're going as this whole global pandemic starts receding. We're seeing it in the USA and we're seeing it in England. And hopefully it spreads to South Africa really, really, really soon. And we'll be back straight after this. This is Tech Talk with Stephen Ambrose on 101.9 High FM. Hi there. Well, welcome back. And obviously, there's a raging. It's become quite an interesting conversation that we have all the time. How has the pandemic changed the way we work? How has technology changed the way that we work? How has the combination of the two fundamentally shifted the way that we work, the way that we live, the way that we play, and the way that we get stuff done on, on a day-to-day basis? And the revolution around mobility, the revolution around connectivity, the revolution around having a laptop and doing your work from anywhere in the world was was something that was becoming more and more relevant prior to uh, COVID-19 hitting the world just over a year ago. But since that time, it has become a fundamental part of how we operate. And as much as all of us long for the connection and the camaraderie and just the general social interaction that you had from going to an office, the simple fact is that things will probably, not probably, things will never go back to quite the way they were before. And some interesting research was released in um, in the U.S. They polled more than 30,000 workers just to get an, an, to gauge whether the arrangements that started off as just a stopgap, something that you did because you had no choice, stay at home, stay away from the office, um, would endure once all these infections have waned. And a good place to do it in America where they are vaccinating pretty much 4 million, 5 million people every day or two. So they will be out of this pandemic pr- 
pretty much in the next couple of months. And then the question remains, do you go back to the office? How does this go and where does it go from there? Prior to the pandemic, only 5% of people tended to work from home. It it wasn't the norm. It was pretty unusual. Now they find, the researchers found, that 20% of full workdays will probably be from home after this whole thing wanes. And that is a huge change. If you think about the knock-on impact on transport systems, if you think of the knock-on impact on the number of seats in a building that a company needs, how they could re-engineer the way things work, this is significantly a fundamental shift. And the other interesting finding is that the work-from-home boom has lifted productivity for the U.S. economy and, you know, by implication for economies around the world, by over 5%. And that is a huge, it doesn't sound like a lot, but in in, in a cumulative basis, 5% more productive every week, every month, every year, is a massive, massive, massive gain. And what they found that that was due to mostly is savings in commuting time, because a lot of people spend a lot of time in the mornings and the evenings getting to work and getting home from work. And if that can be ameliorated or reduced significantly across the global economy, I think there's massive opportunity, again, with implications for transport, for implications for roads, for implications for everything. So it's a fundamental shift around how we work, why we work, what we do, and when we do it. So there's no question that work from home is here to stay. We are going to see benefits coming there are complications. What do you do with the kids? Do Can you claim your spot in the at home as an office? But the fact is, I believe that work, the work environment will change. People will be much more flexible, spend a lot more time at home, out of the office, um, in places where they should, where they would never have considered working, you know, my, um, sort of high quality work environments in fantastic places like the Caribbean are being more and more sought of. Uh, flexible office arrangements are becoming more and more regular. So it's very interesting to see that the, the work from home and the technology that enables it and the laptop sales have gone through the roof. There's a massive global shortage of chips because of this. So there is a significant shift. And as we move out of this pandemic, expect to see more and more options, more and more challenges around it, but certainly more and more ability to work from wherever, to do whatever you want to do and to do it from wherever you want to do it. So on that really positive note, you can all stop listening to the radio now and get back to work from home because that's where it's happening. You've got to pay the bills, pay for your internet connection so you can listen to me some more as I work from home in this crazy time. And on that note, I'm afraid we have to call it a day. This is Stephen Ambrose for Tech Talk right here on IFM. And same place, same time next week for all the latest gizmos, gadgets, and news. And seriously, we'll try to get a few more really smart people in for interviews so we can find out what's going on in the world with technology and everything else besides.